I'm Gwyneth Paltrow, and you're listening to The Goop Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. If you're new here, this is what you can expect. Twice a week, we'll be interviewing a different thought leader. For the most part, you can look out for new episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. We'll talk to doctors, researchers, creatives, founders, therapists, and healers. I'll take turns interviewing mentors and friends. And my chief content officer, Elise Lunin, will interview many more people who we look up to here at Goop. I think you're going to like hearing from Elise, and I hope you'll learn something from every guest we have on the podcast. I know I always do. Today, Elise is talking to Dr. Gabor Mate. Gabor is known for his unique perspective on addiction, child development, and trauma, and how this stress manifests in the body. He has written several books, including The Realm of Hungry Ghosts, Hold On to Your Kids, and Scattered Minds. For 12 years, Gabor worked in Vancouver's downtown east side, the most drug-addicted district in North America. He ministered to patients challenged by addiction, mental illness, and HIV. He also spent 20 years in family practice and palliative care. Elise got to ask Gabor about what he's learned from his incredible personal experiences and his take on the surrounding scientific research. It's a really beautiful conversation, particularly if you're curious about how early childhood experiences sometimes show up later in life. Nothing in itself is addictive, on the one hand. On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled. We'll get to Elise and Gabor in just a minute. There are a handful of practitioners that I've met through Goop who have changed my life, and Lauren Roxborough was one of the first. Lauren is a body alignment expert. In practice, this means she helps put people back together or keeps them feeling whole. Years ago, we started calling her the body whisperer at Goop. Maybe this sounds hyperbolic, but as far as nicknames go, this one really fits. A one-on-one session with Lauren is special. Every time I get off her table, Having been stretched and rolled by her and manipulated, I leave somehow feeling a few inches taller. She is my favorite person to rebound with, which means jumping on a mini trampoline. And I think it's safe to say my fascia has never been healthier thanks to Lauren's foam rolling routines. Fascia, for those who don't know, is the connective tissue that wraps our muscles. What most impresses me about Lo, though, is the way she's been able to impact many more people than she could ever see in her small private practice. And a lot of this has been through her books. Her latest book, which I love, is called The Power Source, the hidden key to ignite your core, empower your body, release stress, and realign your life. It's a tall order, but the book does not let you down. Lowe begins with the pelvic floor, breaking down why it's an integral component of our physical, emotional, and spiritual health. And then she moves through the rest of the body, putting together an easy-to-follow program for overall physical and energetic well-being. This is a book that I know I'll pick up for years to come whenever I need to return to a low routine for letting go of tension, strengthening the body, or finding some inner balance. You can pre-order a copy of The Power Source by Lauren Roxborough today. Just head to your online bookseller of choice. Let's cut to their chat. So it's a major honor to be able to talk to you. I've always wanted to interview you. And... I think that in the realm of hungry ghosts, it should be required reading, regardless of whether your life is touched by addiction. But obviously in today's culture, 
addiction touches all of us in some form. As you say, it's a spectrum. But I think socially, it is a book of such unyielding and beautiful compassion. And I think it's just a reminder of how human we all are. Before we start, I just wanted to read this one passage, which was, we can be moved by the tragedy of mass starvation on a far continent. After all, we have all known physical hunger, if only temporarily, but it takes a greater effort of emotional imagination to empathize with the addict. We readily feel for a suffering child, but cannot see the child and the adult who, his soul fragmented and isolated, hustles for survival a few blocks away from where we shop or work. So I just thought throughout, it is an intense book, but it is it is beautiful and at times funny and fun, hmm. an incredible look at these people who you tended to for 12 years. Is that right? So before we dive into it, I think it's really interesting that you were a family practice doctor, then you did palliative care, and then addiction. Like why? It's It seems to take a certain personality to go and work in fields where it you will have little to no control on outcomes. Is that fair? That's a... (laughs) (laughs) Every time I think I've been asked everything, I realize there's a million new questions I'll never would have thought about. In palliative care especially, the, the beauty of palliative care is that you know you're working with dying people and you're not going to stop them from dying. And so then it becomes a matter of what would be the quality of their lives in their last days or last weeks or last months. And so it becomes a question then of contributing to people's life process without trying to be in charge of what happens at the end. Mm. And it's true that Western medicine is often around control. In fact, we talk about symptom control or disease control. Ultimately, the beauty of medicine is not about control, but it's about the alleviation of suffering and the enhancement of health. And you can do that at any stage of a person's life, even in their very last day of life. Mm -hmm. So really, it's not any different from any other aspect of medicine if if looked at it properly. Yeah, no, it's true. Like that, that incredible transition and probably like a final opportunity to reconcile life or make peace or attend to some of the wounds that I know are at sort of the basis of the pain of life, right? I spoke with somebody recently who, for my new book, I interviewing people who had significant and sometimes terminal diagnoses, but who've either um, confounded their diagnosis and their prognosis and have reversed their illness or have by long shot outlived their prognosis. And this man had a brain tumor, which he had interpreted eventually as a blessing and a teacher. But one aspect of his learning from this brain tumor is to live in the moment. Hmm. He said, because I became very aware of death, he says, which means that whenever I speak to somebody, I realize that this may be the last time I ever speak with them. So it puts him in directly into the moment. Mm. So ultimately, now we all know we're going to die. I know I'm going to die. You know you're going to die. You know you're going to die. But we don't live like we know we're going to die. We don't live like this precious moment could be the last one. So how can we be ultimately present for it and make the most of it? Mm. 
so that really the the dying process has a lot to teach us about living if we're willing to listen so it's not really a contradiction for me to to be a physician and work with dying people or work with addicted people because at every stage of life and every stage of illness and whatever human dysfunction it has a lot to teach us mm-hmm. about actually how to live a healthy life yeah and i think there's one one of your patients at the portland hotel says essentially i'm paraphrasing but that their addiction allows them or keeps them from having to be alive too i'm not afraid of dying sometimes i'm more afraid of living yeah well that speaks to the suffering that underlies all addictions there's many ways that people try to escape from life and our culture provides a multiplicity of escapes from actually experiencing our real selves when we're afraid that our real selves are are suffused with too much suffering mm-hmm. and for the addicted clients i worked with life was just unbearable mm-hmm. and so the the addiction which we usually see as a disease isn't really what it actually is is a desperate attempt to make life livable and so the the question always is well what happens to people that their lives become so intolerable that they have to dull themselves or escape from the reality on the one hand on the other hand for some people the addiction is the only way they do feel alive mm-hmm. because they've suffered so much they've suppressed their own selves and their own feelings so much that it's only the addictive process that brings them alive mm-hmm. So whether they're escaping from the pain of reality or whether they're trying to create a more alive, more vital reality through the addiction, it's always about the intolerability of how they normally experience themselves. Throughout the book, you bust some myths about addiction. One, that it is determined by genetics. Two, that it's the drug. Yeah. And that the medical definition, while accurate, is myopic. What's your expanded idea of what addiction is? So addiction, it's really a complex process. It really includes, involves human physiology, psychology, our emotional lives, our spiritual lives, our bodies, our relationships. But a nutshell definition is that addiction is manifested in any behavior in which a person finds temporary relief and pleasure and therefore craves, but suffers negative consequences as a result of and cannot give up despite negative consequences. Mm. So it's pleasure, relief, craving in the short term, negative outcomes in the long term, difficulty or refusal to give it up. That's what an addiction is. And if you notice, that definition says nothing about drugs. Mm. I mean, it includes cocaine. It could include crystal meth, heroin, nicotine, alcohol, caffeine, whatever, but could also be the internet, it could be gambling, it could be consumer goods, it could be uh, pornography, it could be sex, it could be eating, it could be work, it could be relationships, it could be um, video gaming. In other words, anything that you relate to in a way that it provides some temporary relief or escape from distress, and it gives you some pleasure that otherwise that's not available to you, and therefore you crave, but then you suffer as a result of that's an addiction. Mm-hmm. And so in our society, when I give this talk and in, in any room of 800 to 1,000 or 600 people, I ask how many here by that definition will have an addiction, virtually everybody will put their hand up. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm saying is that in this culture, most people are addicted to something. And we obviously judge those who are more aggressively addicted very harshly. 
We judge those whose addictions we don't approve of. I mean, we've kind of arbitrarily decided that what addictions are respectable and what are not. For example, we judge heroin addicts more than we judge people who, say, smoke cigarettes. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting because from the health point of view, heroin is far safer than cigarettes are. <laughs> unless you overdose on it. Right. But if you take a thousand people who do heroin in a non-overdose quantity, three or four times a day for 20 years and compare them to people who smoke a pack a day for 20 years, you're going to have much more disease, much more death in a cigarette group. Right. So what we decide is respectable and acceptable, let, let alone the, the work addiction in our society, or what about the profit addiction that's killing the earth? Right. I mean, nobody outside the loony realm disputes climate change anymore, which simply reflects an addiction to profit. Yeah. Now, why do we judge the heroin addict who hurts nobody but themselves and we think that profit addiction, where people crave it, they can't stop it despite the negative harm, why do we find that acceptable? It's completely arbitrary. It is completely arbitrary. And I think that you talk about, there's a quote that I love that we sort of is one of the foundational tenets, I think, of Goop, which is about autonomy over our lives and taking responsibility. We human beings do not like feeling responsible as individuals for our own actions, as parents for our children's hurts, or as a society for our many failings. Right. And that there's this idea, like, we can blame the, we can, and obviously pharmaceutical companies bear responsibility in the opioid crisis, but that it's so much easier to say, oh, that person genetically was absolutely destined to be a an addict, or it was the drug, when, when there's actually, it's it's a tiny part of it. I mean, ultimately, it's the expression of those genes. And Well, so there are two dynamics driving this myth of the gene, and I, it really is a myth. Mm-hmm. Genes have far less to do with human behavior and human illness than we imagine, with some p- specific, clear exceptions. Like 5%, right? S- very small percentage. Yeah. I mean, if you take 100 women with breast cancer, 7 will have the breast cancer gene, 93 will not. Right. Now, the, in the addiction field, there are two dynamics driving the genetic myth. One is the 12-step movement, which has done a lot of people a lot of good, so I'm not here to demean them in any way, but they do have this one wrong. Mm-hmm. They say you got this genetic disease, and your father had it, you have it, it's gotta be genetic. So there's that powerful popular movement that basically bases its beliefs on this genetic foundation. Then there's the pseudoscience of genetics, I say pseudoscience, not because there isn't great genetic science, but because how the findings are interpreted is often pseudoscience. The reality is that nobody has ever found a single gene that causes a single addiction. Mm. And every once in a while, there's a new big newspaper headline saying, we found the alcoholism gene, and then five years later, there'll be an article on the back page of the paper saying, oh, no, we didn't. <laughs> and I'm, I can't go into this, the detail here as to how they misinterpret the data. But the reality is, the bottom line is, that we know that even if there are some genes that may predispose to addiction, which there are, these genes don't predetermine. 
So a predisposition just makes it more likely that something will happen, but it doesn't cause that thing to happen. And so we know that human beings and in primates, even if there are genes that may predispose to addiction, if we give those creatures, whether primates or human beings, children, the right environment, the risk of addiction would be no greater than that of anybody without the genes. Right. And if you take something like the Native American population here in North America, these people had access to plants, they had gambling games, access to tobacco, there was no addiction. If addiction was genetic, how come? Mm -hmm. And if you look at what happened to them and why there's such a high rate of addiction amongst Native Americans here in North America now, on both sides of the border, high rates of suicide, addiction, sexual abuse, mental illness, dysfunctionality, violence, it's the result of multiple generations of severe trauma that was imposed upon them. Yeah. So even if they're genetic predispositions, they have to be triggered by trauma in order to be activated. Mm -hmm. The fact is, you don't have to have genes to be addicted, you just have to have trauma that you have no other way of escaping from. So the genetic model takes society off the hook. Mm -hmm. If we can explain the addiction of who we in Canada call First Nations people, the Aboriginal population, through genetics, then we don't have to look at the devastating effects of colonialism and the ongoing effects of racism on their lives. Right. Yeah, and same in America. It's like we have a long history foundationally based on white supremacy. Yeah. And its implications on society are still felt. And it's been far too easy for people to ascribe those qualities to ra different races, whether it is Native Americans or African Americans, in a way that's obviously a total fallacy. And I know you talk about the adoption studies and you also talk about sort of what happened with Vietnam vets, right? Mm -hmm. Who were abusing tons of drugs in Vietnam mm -hmm. and then were able to completely come clean. Well, from something like 20% of the of, of the American soldiers in, in Vietnam were heavy uh, opiate users over there. And when they came back, the vast majority spontaneously gave it up, which means that the drug itself is not the addictive uh, problem because if the drug was addictive, how could they give it up? Mm -hmm. Furthermore, if the opiates were themselves addictive, well, let me step back a bit. I always ask these people, I always ask people this question, is food addictive, yes or no? Mm. What would you say? Only when sort of applied to numb pain. Well, that's it. The answer is yes or no. Right. Uh, you know, and, and is alcohol addictive? Yes or no. Is gambling addictive? Yes or no. The answer is yes or no. Right. Depending on the individual and what they're... But there's no gambling gene. Right. But if, but, but if somebody needs to escape the boredom and the pain of their lives and they need the excitation of their brain circuitry of incentive and motivation through the chemical dopamine and the gambling will do that for them, then they'll be addicted to gambling. Not because gambling is addictive, but because they need the stimulation of that thrill-seeking. Mm -hmm. Same as sex addicts. Sex is not addictive, but for somebody who needs to keep proving to themselves over and over again that somebody wants them, that they're lovable, because they learned in childhood that they weren't, and especially if they learn to be accepted and wanted through their bodies, now you've got a sex addict. Mm -hmm. And even then, it's not about the sex, because if sex addiction was pure about, purely about sex, two sex addicts could just partner up for life and they'd be happy. Right. But it's not about that. It's about having to prove to yourself over and over again that you're desirable. 
Right. And it's about the thrill of the hunt and the chase and the seeking. In other words, the high dopamine levels in your brain. Mm-hmm. So nothing in itself is addictive on one hand. On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about that, sort of the importance of environment. And maybe one way in is first sort of talking about, because it's this is so hopeful, the study about rats in cages when they're in isolation versus when they're in community. Yeah. And then sort of we can move into early childhood and, and all of that. Well, so there's a couple of animal studies here that are interesting. They used to say that drugs are addictive because they put animals into cages, hook them up to wires and IV apparatus. And if these animals could push a lever that would give them, say, cocaine, they'd keep pushing it to the point of death. Mm-hmm. So this proves how addictive or, or, or say morphine mm-hmm. is. But a couple of people, including a friend of mine in Vancouver, Bruce Alexander, had this brilliant idea. Maybe it's not that the drugs are so addictive, but when you tie animals up and you put them in small cages and you hook them to electricity, electrical apparatus, maybe you're torturing them, and maybe it's the torture they're seeking to escape. So what would happen if you gave rats a good environment with lots of other playmates and toys to play with and good food and you know, broad spaces to roam in, and then you tried to make them addicted to morphine. He couldn't do it. Mm. Even the rats that he made physically dependent on morphine, he couldn't make them addicted to morphine. Mm. And this has been done more than once, by the way, which proves that it's not the substance that's the addiction-inducing quality, but the suffering that you pose on the animal. And if you don't make the animal suffer, they have no reason to become addicted. In other words, addiction is a solution to the problem of suffering. Now, we've done this with monkeys. I mentioned dopamine. It's, it's an important incentive motivation chemical implicated in all addictions, whether it's work or sex or gambling, shopping, cocaine or morphine. Mm-hmm. We have receptors in our brain for dopamine. People who are more prone for addiction have fewer receptors. Mm. So they need more dopamine to make them equally motivated and alive as other people. Now you take monkeys and you put them into isolation, you're reducing the number of their dopamine receptors. Mm. You bring them out of isolation, put them in social company, the number of their dopamine receptors come back to normal, unless they're bullied, in which case it doesn't. Mm. In other words, our social relationships actually shape the circuitry and the chemistry of our brain, which takes us back to childhood. Yeah. Which is that the brain is actually formed in relationship to the early environment. And if that environment is nurturing, supportive, in, in all the necessary ways, we'll have healthy brain development. But if, if that nurturing and that support is withheld from us because of our parents' stresses, their traumas, their busyness, their relationship issues, whatever, or, or external conditions like racism, poverty, or war, then those parents are not able to give us the nurturing, attuned attention we require, or they may even impose suffering upon us. And under those conditions, the brain doesn't develop quite as well as it should. And now, if you ask why in North America you have so many more kids being diagnosed with all manner of problems, from ADHD to autism to oppositional defined disorder to anxiety, depression, learning difficulties, so on and so forth, it's because social conditions more and more undermined 
parents' capacity to be there for their kids. Mm -hmm. And so we're actually negatively affecting the brain development of millions of children through social dynamics that has nothing to do with parents' best intentions or their love for their child. Right. So, and this even goes back into pregnancy, right? And I know it's, this is a hard conversation. It's a hard conversation for me to have as a working mother and mm -hmm. a stressed mother. Mm -hmm. And I know like the, the blame the mother culture, which isn't fair, but as we, we gird ourselves for that conversation, when you look at adoption studies too, which suggest that adoptive children have harder times with addiction, et cetera, your counter point is that it's not genetic, it is informed by a traumatic gestational period, is that right? So there was an article in the journal of pediatrics, which is the official journal of the American Pediatric Academy. And the article is from the Harvard Center on a Developing Child, mm -hmm. published in January 2012, which sums up decades of brain research. And I quote them almost verbatim. They say that the architecture of the brain is conducted, it's constructed through an ongoing process that begins before birth and continues into adulthood. Mm. Which means, and we know this from multiple studies internationally, that the emotional states of the mother, while she's carrying the child, is already affecting the brain development of the child. Mm. So the more stressed women are, the more the stress hormones are affecting the baby. And the more stressed women are, the more that affects the nervous system of the baby in the uterus. Mm. So when you stress millions of women for all kinds of reasons, this is not mother blaming. Right. We're actually talking about the stresses of women, not the love that women have, not whether they do their best, not whether they're devoted. None of that is in question. What is in question is the stress that women are living under. Mm -hmm. And the more stress you put pregnant mothers on, the more negatively affecting the child's brain development. Now, if you look at, look at adoptions, and this is the way adoption studies which are the gold standard of genetics, because the idea is that if you take identical twins and you separate them at birth, they're brought up in different families, now you can tell what is environmental and what is genetic, because everything they have the same has to be genetic, mm. and everything that's different has to be environmental. But the assumption is, is that these twins are growing up in different environments, but they don't. They grew up nine months in the same uterus. Mm -hmm. And any woman that's going to give up a baby for adoption is by definition stressed. If she wasn't stressed, she would not have to give up the baby. Mm -hmm. So she's a poor mom, a single mom, a teenage mom, an addicted mom, an abused mom. Mm -hmm. So for nine months, the mother's stress is affecting the baby. And then there's the separation from the birth mother. Now every mammal at birth has an immediate bonding ritual with the infant. Human beings, the baby comes to the breast and they start suckling. That's the natural movement. Mm -hmm. And that the same body that the infant has been used to now for nine months, and the same heartbeat, and the same voice, and the same biorhythms, now continues to be the holding environment. Not an adoption. An adoption is an abrupt break. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden that body is gone forever. Now, the infant experiences that as a major loss, in fact, as a major abandonment. Mm -hmm. So you have this deep abandonment wound. So you cannot tell. In other words, identical twins brought up in different families were not brought up under different circumstances. Mm -hmm. they, they, they experienced essential formative months and months and months in the same environment. And not only are they separated from the birth mother, they're also separated from each other. Mm -hmm. And I've worked with adults who've had a twin 
dying in utero mm. and there's a deep loss, sense mm. of loss inside them. Mm. So that you simply cannot make the argument that you can separate identical twins and put them in so-called different environments and somehow you're proving anything about genetics. You're not. Right. It's so sad because so many of these things, as you said, it's never, you know, your own personal story is the perfect example of stress, of, of social stress, war, and its impact on what can happen. For those who don't know, do you mind sort of explaining what happened to you as a baby? No, not at all. Uh, I talk about it publicly. I'll only make the point that although my story is particularly dramatic, at least historically speaking, it doesn't have to be so dramatic. Mm -hmm. So in my case, I was born a Jewish infant in Hungary in 1944, two months before the Nazis occupied the country. So I was two months old when the German death machine entered my country. And they had already annihilated millions of Jews throughout Eastern Europe, now it was Hungary's turn. So I spent the first year of my life under threat of extinction, as with my mother, who was therefore, you can imagine what state she was in mentally, and our father, my father being away, she not knowing if he's dead or alive, mm -hmm. her parents taken to Auschwitz, and us having terrible conditions in terms of nutrition and illness and threat and so on. And when I was nearly a year old, she gives me to a complete stranger in the street to save my life, and I don't see her for six weeks. Mm. So I know this deep sense of abandonment that's ingrained in my body and my mind, you know, and, and that sense of abandonment can even show up 70 years later mm. when my wife doesn't pick me up at the airport, <laughs> you know, because she forgot, because she's too much into her painting, you know. <laughs> but, and, and although I have no recollection for being abandoned my mother, because there's no recollection when you're a year old, parts of the brain that recollect are not developed yet, but the emotional memory is ingrained in the brain and the body. Right. Now, it doesn't have to be that dramatic. Mm -hmm. In North America, and, and well, not North America, in the United States, what is the average maternity leave? Oh, there is no paid leave. Exactly. Yeah. And, and how long does the average mother stay home with their babies? Days. Yeah. Those babies are ab experience abandonment. Mm-hmm. Because mm -hmm. their bodies, if you look at animals, like primates, mm -hmm. they hold their babies for months. Mm -hmm. If you look at hunter-gatherer people, and we evolved as hunter-gatherers, and until the blink of an eye ago, we were all hunter-gatherers in terms of evolution, those babies were carried everywhere by their parents. Mm -hmm. they were not, they're not put in separate rooms left to cry themselves to sleep. They were not left in daycares. They were not left so that the mom and the dad can go back to work. They were carried everywhere by the, by, by, and, and that's the healthy, essential condition. And because the human being, the British anthropologist, uh, Ashley Montague made this point very eloquently, that the human child is the least matured at birth of any mammalian creature. I mean, our brains are less developed. Look at a horse, it can run on the first day of life. We can't do that for a year and a half. Our brains are just not developed. We're still needing to be in the womb, except the reason we come out that early is because our brains are going to be so big that if our head was any larger, we would not get born. Mm -hmm. But that means we're born prematurely. That means in terms of development, we still need what he calls exterogestation. Mm -hmm. Now, interogestation is gestation inside the womb. Exterogestation is the continuation of that developmental process outside the womb and requires the holding of the mothering environment. And in a culture that essentially eliminates the mothering environment, by forcing people to go back to work and by putting economic and social pressure on people, 
or the welfare policies that were brought in under the Clintons, actually, mm-hmm. that forced uh, poor women to commute hours a day to go to some work and leave their own babies behind, were actually interfering with the brain development of these kids. And we are imposing a deep sense of abandonment and anxiety in those kids. Mm-hmm. Now, you wonder why the rates of anxiety are going up in this culture? Why more and more kids are being diagnosed with everything? It's because of the social stress we put on women. Mm-hmm. And it's not blaming the mother to say so. And also, you know, we don't have any, like that. this idea of alloparenting or that you have your mother and your sister and you have other nurturing people around you to help yeah. has obviously been just doesn't really exist. Well, again, if you go back to the hunter-gatherer tribe, there's a really astute psychological researcher, Dr. Darcia Narvez at Notre Dame University. You might actually enjoy talking to her one day. Yeah. She studied what is the optimal parenting environment. She found it was the hunter-gatherer tribe, Mm. partly for the reasons that you just articulated, which is that in hunter-gatherer tribe, parenting is not an individual or a nuclear family responsibility. It's done by everybody. Mm-hmm. That child is attached to every adult and aunts and uncles and sisters and older brothers and cousins and everybody's there to support the, the parents. That's the ideal parenting environment. We've gone so far away from that and we live in a culture of isolation. So much so now that people are even studying now the creation of a pill for loneliness. Mm. And there's lots and lots of studies showing the actual physiologically devastating effects of isolation where we're bringing up kids under condition of isolation and parents are having to function under condition of isolation. Mm. Those, are, those are devastating to human health. We'll get right back to the chat. When it comes to skincare, I am big on exfoliating a lot. I use Goop's Exfoliating Instant Facial every single day, even though the box technically says to do it just two or three times a week. I don't really wear makeup when I'm going to the office during the week, but I always wear moisturizer or face oil. And the other thing I do every single morning is drink Goop Glow. Goop Glow is our morning skin super powder. So in other words, it's a powder that you mix into a glass of water. The flavor tastes a little like oranges and a little like lemon verbena. I love it. We designed Goop Glow to be full of ingredients that support healthy, glowing skin. There are six potent antioxidants in Goop Glow. You've probably heard of most of them, like vitamin C and vitamin E, CoQ10, lutein, and zeaxanthin. And altogether, these antioxidants in Goop Glow are meant to reduce the free radical effects of the sun, pollution, and everyday stress. Topical skincare is great, but I personally don't think it's enough, which is why I like adding Goop Glow to my routine. The powder comes in cute little single dose packets, I subscribe to our 30 packs of Goop Glow, so I get my new box every month. And if I'm not drinking it at home, I'll throw a packet in my gym bag on the way to work out, or I'll bring a bunch of Goop Glow in my carry-on when I'm traveling for sure. If you want to try it out yourself, 
and I highly recommend you do. Order one box of Goop Glow today and we'll include a second box on us. Just head to goop.com slash podcast and use promo code goopglow at checkout. That's goop.com slash podcast and use promo code goopglow to get your second box on us. Friends who are regulars at the European Wax Center appreciate things like their seamless booking and checkout process or how they're conveniently located throughout major cities. But as a brand, they're also starting some important conversations for women, and frankly, for men too. Last April, the European Wax Center launched a campaign called Axe the Pink Tax, which they're kicking off again this April. The campaign empowers women, as well as men, to use their purchasing power for good. If you're not familiar with the concept already, the pink tax is the extra amount that the average woman is charged daily for basic goods and services. There have been a few different groups that have looked at gender-based pricing differences, and it's been estimated that the average woman may be charged more than $1,000 every year simply on the account of being a woman and buying products and services targeted at women. What's perhaps most frustrating about this is that there is a real lack of transparency. Most women I know don't know that we could be charged more for, say, buying a pink children's toy or women's deodorant. We deserve better, and the European Wax Center gets this. To learn more and to get involved in the conversation they're starting, head to axthepinktax.com. Let's go back to Elise and Gabor Mate. So in the most ideal, perfect scenario, we would have a social construct that supports moms alleviates the stress of providing for themselves, supports other functions like mental health care, particularly for like extremely stressed or traumatized mothers. And then after the birth, there would be some sort of sustained, supportive family leave. And at what point, like, I know it's the first few years, but I mean, thinking of an alloparenting model and the fact that as a working mom, like I have to work and I love my work. Yeah. Is that something that then socially, if we could get back to a model, like I have an incredible, my life wouldn't function without Vicky who takes care, is our nanny mm-hmm. who has been with us since Max was, my oldest was two months old mm-hmm. and she's family. Mm-hmm. I don't know if she is an appropriate substitute for me again, but well, you know, <laughs> this yeah, is my yeah. own guilt speaking. <laughs> Well, look, the fact is that a lot of women have to work in order to support the family. Yeah. And secondly, women also have a natural drive to express themselves, their talents and their capacities out there in the world and not just be relegated to the child-caring role. That's all okay, as long as we recognize what's being lost here and we substitute for it. Mm -hmm. So the substitution for it doesn't necessarily require that women stay barefoot, pregnant at home in the kitchen. But it does require that we honor the child's need for attachment. Mm. So if there's another figure that can step into that role and the child can still get their attachment needs met and when you come home in the evening, you're really there for that child and you, rec- and you, and you don't assume that, she's still your ch- that he's still your child, mm. but that you reconnect with them every day after every separation and that on the weekends you really live a life that's child-centered. Mm-hmm. And if the child goes to daycare, 
they go to a daycare where adult relationships are the primary dynamics so the child doesn't have to transfer his allegiance to the peer group. Mm. In other words, if we understand the need for children to stay attached to nurturing and emotionally attuned adults, mm -hmm. then we can compensate for what we have lost in terms of the continual presence of the parents. The problem is that this society deprives most children of the of the presence of the parent without substituting anything else in the place of it. Right. So children actually lose their healthy adult attachments and the results are devastating for their development and for their relationships. Yeah. And often you talk about how so many children, not only do they not have healthy adult attachments, there there are adults in their lives that abuse them, traumatize them, and then they're sort of really lost in a system of other adults who might have good intentions but who they will never trust. Well, in the downtown east side where I worked for all these uh, Vancouver, the, mm -hmm. the hardcore substance users, without exception, they've been, they've been abused as children. I mean, in 12 years, I did not meet a single female patient who had not been sexually abused as a child. Mm -hmm. And I mean, not one. And the men had been abused to significant degrees as well, many sexually, some physically, emotionally, and so on. That's one point I wanted to make. I mean, you do studies on large-scale population of drug users, the rates of, of overt abuse are like significantly high, significantly, mm -hmm. significantly high. So it's clear that the addiction is their attempt to escape from that suffering. But the other point I wanted to make about you and your friend Vicky is, <laughs> does Vicky have children herself? Yes. Okay. Well, well, she's a grandparent. Oh, she's a grandparent. Yes. So her, she's no longer looking after small children. Yeah. Because I was once in a documentary called um, The House I Live In. Mm. And the filmmaker had been brought up in a middle-class, well-to-do home in New York, I think, or New Jersey. And the, fa the parents were busy and stressed and so on, but they had this wonderful nanny, black woman, mm -hmm. who was just like a loving presence in their lives. But she had her own child that she had to leave behind every day mm. in order to come to, to look after the children of this well-to-do family. Her own child became a drug addict. Mm. She couldn't be there for her. So, I mean, the point I'm making that in this society, sometimes the middle-class children are taken care of mm -hmm. at the expense of lower-class children. Totally. Yeah. It's like one of the endemic, horrible parts of living in our culture. Yeah. At this point, there aren't amazing solutions, particularly for someone who needs to work. But let's talk to, I thought it was really interesting. I know you've written, you wrote Scattered Minds as well, which is about ADHD and ADD. And you talk about how that's a, there's a major Venn diagram between addiction and ADHD or ADD, which yeah. you call a dis developmental, not a disease, but a developmental disorder. Well, so again, in fact, there's an article in Kaiser News. California has just appointed a physician named Nadine Burke-Harris as their new Surgeon General. Mm. And Burke-Harris is a physician who studied childhood trauma. Mm. She's written a very well-known book about it and has given a TED talk about it. And in this article, it's mentioned that maybe people with ADD, it's a post-traumatic thing. Now, which is, which is, and I've, on, I've only been saying that for the last 20 years or so. <laughs> and you need a woman to say it for you. <laughs> I'm very glad she's saying it. It's great. You know, I, I know she's a wonderful person. I mean, I've talked with yeah. her. But, but the point is, I mean, I have ADD. Yeah. So we can look upon this as genetic disease because 
couple of my kids have been diagnosed with it, so you can, it's a genetic disease. The dad's got it, the kids got it. That has to be inheritory, inheritable. And there's this myth that it's an inherited disease. Well, I'm saying it's neither a disease, nor is it inherited. Mm-hmm. So that scattered attention, that tuning out, why do you suppose people have the capacity to tune out? I mean, what's the, there has to be some benefit to it. Everybody has the capacity to tune out. What do we get from it? What we get from it is when there's stress and you can't help the stress, you protect yourself from the stress by tuning out. Mm. So tuning out begins as a protection. Mm-hmm. But what happens when, for example, an infant like myself lives in a constant environment of stress? Then I'm tuning out a lot of the time simply to protect myself. Mm-hmm. When am I tuning out? When my brain circuits are developing. So then the tuning out becomes wired in. It's kind of the default setting of my brain. And now they say, you've got this disease. You don't have a disease. You have a developmental problem. Mm. The problem is that your brain developed a certain way because the conditions were so stressed. Mm-hmm. That's what's happening in North America now. And that's why the rates of ADHD is going up all the time. If it was genetic, it wouldn't be changing. Right. Genes don't change in a population over 10, 20, 30, or 100 years. Mm-hmm. So what's really happening is an epidemic of stress on infants, on parents, I should say, which is then translated into the stress of infants, which is then translated into the defense of dividing your attention. And then you've got all these kids with ADHD which also means that it's reversible. If we provide kids with the right conditions, their brains can develop in healthier ways, Mm. even later on. So the issue is not just how do we medicate these kids so that temporarily they can settle down and pay attention, but how do we help them develop in healthy ways. And for that, we have to really reinvent the home environment and the school environment and the daycare environment. Mm -hmm. And we have to really look at the role of... uh, parental relationships, adult relationships, teacher-child relationships, how much creativity and expression we allow these kids, how much play we allow them, how much activity we allow them, to what extent do we get them addicted to screens and and, and video games and gadgets rather than genuine contact with real human beings. Now, when it comes to addiction and ADD, ADD is a major risk factor for addiction, and not just because they begin with the same three letters. But, hmm. but fundamentally, because both of them are rooted in stress, both of them represent ex- escapes from stress, number one, and number two, they both involve deficiencies of, of the brain incentive motivation apparatus. That's why we give kids medications such as stimulants to elevate their dopamine levels, to make them more motivated, really. Mm-hmm. And furthermore, they both involve poor impulse regulation. In mm-hmm. other words, the, the kid with ADD or the adult with addiction, they both have trouble regulating their impulses. Right. So of course the one is a risk factor for the other. However, if I ask you what large group of people also lacks, completely lacks impulse regulation, besides people with ADD and besides people with addictions, who else lacks that, uh, impulse regulation? What is the largest group of human beings that lacks impulse regulation completely naturally? Who are they? Children. Exactly. Infants. Mm. Young children. Which means that impulse regulation is something that has to develop. Mm. So the people that don't have impulse regulation, is not that they're born with the brain disease, it's that they didn't have the right conditions in which those circuits of impulse regulation could develop. Mm. So no ability to self-regulate. Well, diminished ability to self-regulate. Yeah. So, that, so that when they have an impulse, you tend to act it out. You want to see something in the store that you don't need having got the money for, but you spend the money anyway just on impulse. 
Right. That's lack of impulse regulation. And that's a developmental problem. That's the good news. Because, again, we know that the brain can develop new circuits even later on. But if we see these childhood so-called diagnoses not as diseases, but as developmental problems, then what we'll be asking ourselves is not how to cure a disease or just how to medicate it, but what conditions do people need to develop healthier ways of being? Mm -hmm. And that's totally doable if we just understood it. Right. Which 99% of the medical profession does not, nor does 99% of the educational profession, and 0% of the legal profession understands it. Otherwise, we wouldn't be putting people in these horrendous prisons. But do you understand how to do it? Yeah, it's straightforward. We just have to learn. We just have to learn from what we already know. Right. Look, you know what I told you about um, pregnancy and stress on the pregnant woman and how that affects the infant. Sometimes I speak a lot to First Nations communities in Canada. You know, because they have many problems which they invite me to address. And when I mention this business of this pregnant woman and the stress, they tell me, oh, in our culture, traditionally, if you were angry and upset and somebody was pregnant, you weren't allowed to go near the pregnant woman because mm. we didn't want you to transfer the stress and the anger that you have to the infant. Mm. In other words, what I'm saying is human beings have always known what to do with children. We've always known what to do with each other. This mm. is our birthright. This is our evolutionary niche this is we couldn't have evolved otherwise it's just a matter of going back mm-hmm. to what we already know and sometimes i really laugh because i mean I, I travel all over the world and speak about these issues and there are other people you know dr dan siegel from la and bessel vanderkoe from boston and bruce perry dr bruce perry from the houston child trauma academy and any number of people who talk about childhood development, trauma, brain development, all these issues. And sometimes I laugh because what do we all get paid to do and talk about? And what are we all finding out when we do brain scans and blood tests and heart rate monitoring and, and intense psychological research? Dr. Darcia Narvez and her research about the, the optimal parenting environment. What are we finding out? We're finding out that if you treat kids well, they're going to be okay. And if you don't treat them well, they're not going to be okay. Right. I mean, this is what we're finding out and having to prove to people. It's absurd from one point of view. Yeah. And recently, I saw an amazing piece of research three weeks ago. You know what they found out? This is going to knock your socks off. Grandmothers are good for kids. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody actually researched that grandmothers are good for kids. Oh, I know. It is so basic, and we make things so complex. That's the whole point. Yeah. You have seen really horribly hard and tragic things. Have you seen, like, what gives you hope? Have you seen people experience, despite extreme trauma, overcome? It happens all the time. It happens all the time. People overcome severe trauma all the time. And Many more could if they were given the right help. Mm -hmm. It's just that we live in a system that, look, the average medical student, this is still true, we're talking 2019 now. This is, despite all the publications, all the major studies, all the research on the impact of trauma, on human development, on psychology, on relationships, on brain development, 
despite all this research, the average medical student still does not get a single lecture on trauma mm. in four or five years of their undergraduate education. They might not even hear the word trauma. I was yesterday here in San Francisco, met with a group of physicians who work in addictions. I asked how many of us heard the word trauma in medical school, nobody put their hand up. Mm. So we could be helping so many, so many more people if we just understood mm -hmm. the connection between adult behavior and childhood stress. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and this shows up in physical disease, it shows up in mental illness, it shows up in addictions. The links are obvious, proven, physiological, not controversial, and they're the ignored mm. variable. Totally. It's true. It's like we, the answer to addiction is sort of take away, take away the agent, right? Yeah. Or substitute another agent. Or substitute the other agent. Yeah. Never. Yeah. It's the same with medicine, right? It's yeah. treat the symptom. It's not understand the underlying disease. Well. Uh, and so, or not disease, but the underlying agent. Well, so let me tell you a fact. In the 1930s or 40s, the gender ratio of multiple sclerosis was about one to one. Mm. Now it's three and a half women to every man. Multiple sclerosis. Physiological disorder has to do with the, the nervous system. Right. Whatever has changed in the last 70 years cannot be genetic. Because mm. genes don't change. And why should they change for women more than for men in any case? Right. It can't be the climate. It can't be the diet, because that hasn't changed more for one gender than the other. So what has changed? What has changed is that women have always had the roles of being the emotional sponges, if you like, of their environment. They soak up the stresses of their husbands, mm. and, 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 and often their children, and often even their older generations. That's just, I'm not saying that that's their biological role, I'm saying that's been their culturally assigned role. Yeah. Number one. And so what frequently happens is that women are prescribed antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications far more often, not because they have an individual problem, but because they're absorbing the anxieties and stresses of their whole environment. Mm -hmm. So that's still happening. That hasn't changed. Women are still the primary emotional caregivers. Right. But as you, as in your case, women have also been induced to play an economic role and sometimes very legitimately, they choose to play in a comic role because, again, they want to express their full selves. But their other role has not been shared. Mm -hmm. So they still have the roles of being the emotional caregivers and now they have to make a living as well. Mm -hmm. Or they choose to. And it's not that they shouldn't choose to. It's that if they're going to be shared economic roles, they should also be shared emotional roles. Right. But that hasn't happened. And on top of that, people are more isolated, as we've already pointed out. So now there's more stress and less capacity to share that stress because people are more isolated. Of course you've got three and a half women to every man with multiple sclerosis, which is purely a stress-driven disease. Mm. And I've known people who reverse their multiple sclerosis simply by dealing with their stresses in their lives. But we're not, and, but we're not telling people this. We just look upon on their, their multiple sclerosis or their rheumatoid arthritis or their scleroderma or their lupus or their chronic fatigue or their colitis or their Crohn's disease or their chronic psoriasis or whatever as their isolated biological diseases. And we're not seeing the relationship that the disease in that individual expresses something about the entire environment and their relationship to the environment. Mm -hmm. so, if, so there was a study uh, a couple of years, years ago here in the States that showed that 
the more episodes of racism a black American woman experiences, the greater her risk for asthma. Mm. Now, is that disease of asthma that woman's individual physiological problem, or does it reflect a social malaise? The fact is you can't separate Mm-mm. the the social, emotional, cultural, economic environment from people's individual health conditions. And so in this culture, 80% of the people with autoimmune disease are women. And it's not because of any gender weakness. It's because of the extra stress. It's a crisis. It's globalization and the global capitalist economy spreads around the world, so does autoimmune disease. Mm. And societies that never had autoimmune disease are not having it. Right. So it's, it's like with addiction. Uh, rather than anything being an individual, mostly genetically determined problem, most illnesses reflect some relationship to our social and cultural and economic and, 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 and relational environment. And environment in general, yeah. too, right? And, and the environment in yeah. general, of course, yeah. The, the whole, uh, not, not even to mention the physical environment, but all yeah. the uh, pollutants and who knows what in, in, in the food that we eat and the air that we breathe. Yeah. No, it is definitely a toxic stew and one that, do you, besides like a major social overhaul, are there things that you think are happening culturally that give you hope? Well, I mean, more and more people are waking up to the dysfunction. Yeah. Uh, that's a good thing. I mean, the very fact that we're having this conversation, you know, is, is a sign that there's, in both of us, there's a curiosity about what's going on and we're looking for some, some way out. Mm-hmm. So that's a good thing. So the fact that more and more people are questioning and challenging traditional thinking, that's a good thing. And this shows up not just in healthcare, but also in psychology and politics and, and, and everywhere else. So that's a good thing. As I mentioned, there, there's a slow, gradual, but definite movement towards understanding these connections. Like, like here in California, again, that you should appoint a surgeon general who's trauma-informed. Mm-hmm. That's unique in North America. That's unique in uh, the United States for sure. But it's a very, very uh, hopeful sign. Mm. And the fact that there's much more conversation on trauma now than there was 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, that's a good sign. Yeah. In terms of social trends, on the other hand, <laughs> I think we're certainly heading in the wrong direction in, yeah. in, in the sense that we're getting more isolated, more technologized, less humanly connected, more stressed, more polluted, Mm-hmm. And um, but I'm optimistic in the long term. I really do believe in people's capacity to wake up. Yeah, I also believe that the more things that we recognize as being spectrum based, and it's not just about extreme abuse and deprivation. That oh, these are right. that these are subtle, and that we all live on the spectrum. It allows us to relate. Absolutely. I mean, look, I can tell you, broadly speaking, that. My children were not abused, mm-hmm. but they did live in an environment of stress because they had a workaholic father and a stressed mother. Mm-hmm. And so it does not take the kind of extremes where people are abused or they live in severe wartime conditions like I did as an infant. Humans just have certain needs. They have needs for a tuned, non-stressed parental connection. That's just a developmental need. And so anything that interferes with that will have some impact on the developing child. And again, the population I worked with 
in, uh, in Vancouver was a highly abused population, but it does not take those degrees of stress and trauma to tilt people in the wrong direction. Mm. Because as the British psychiatrist D.W. Winnicott pointed out, or I'm paraphrasing him, but basically he said two, th two things can go wrong in childhood. One is when bad things happen that shouldn't have, but the other is when good things don't happen that should have. Mm -hmm. And it's not because anybody wants to hurt their kids or not because they're not good parents, not because they don't love their children. It's again because of the stresses of modern society. Well, thank you so much. This was incredible. Oh, well, thank you. It's a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for joining Elise's interview with Gabor Mate. To learn more about his fascinating work, head to drgabormate.com. Again, we're so grateful that you tuned in to the Goop podcast today, and we hope you'll be back soon. We have a new episode coming on Thursday. As always, we'd love to know what you think, so please rate and review, share with a friend, and hit subscribe. Head to goop.com slash the podcast for more info.